Hello, and welcome to the Innovation Matters Podcast. I am Anthony. I am your host. I'm a senior director here at Lux Research. And once again, I am joined by my colleague, Mike. Mike is here with me, recording from New York. Um, and Karthik is still out on vacation, which is, you know, we wish him all the best. Um, <laughs> we are recording this on the, the 20th of November. And this is important because we are going to be talking a lot about OpenAI, the the most important company ever, depending on who you ask. Uh, before we get into that, Mike, how how are you today? No complaints. Getting uh, getting ready for Thanksgiving and and all of that. Heading out on Wednesday. Yep. So it's Monday. It's the twentieth. It's Monday. Yep. On Friday, we had the, the shocking news that OpenAI's CEO and I believe founder, uh, Sam co-founder, Altman, yeah. co-founder, was fired by the board, right? Uh, they put out this kind of vague statement saying that basically, you know, there had been a breakdown in communication, right? He had not been consistently candid with them, as I believe the exact terminology, and he was let go. Uh, in case you missed it, OpenAI is the company that, so first of all, we'll get into the structure, which is interesting here, but there is the OpenAI nonprofit, right, which is what the board of directors sits on and controls. And then a subsidiary of the OpenAI nonprofit is the for-profit OpenAI company that Sam is the CEO, or I should say, was the CEO of, right? Um, this is owned 51% by the OpenAI nonprofit and 49% by Microsoft. You may remember that Microsoft invested $10 billion into the company part of the uh, company um, last year, um, or maybe even earlier this year, actually. I can't remember. Um, so they put out the statement. They said, he's fired. He has not been consistently candid with us. This sparked a ton of speculation, of news stories, of tweets. One of the things that we determined when we started this podcast is that we were not going to do tweet review. Um, But I have decided that we can do a little bit of tweet review today, just as a a treat, a little pre-Thanksgiving treat for ourselves. So we're going to look at some really dumb tweets. Um, But there's been a pretty wide range of speculation about what actually caused this. Um, The board quickly sort of clarified that there was no illegal activity, no malfeasance, um, and then began to walk things back. There's this whole like apparent negotiation between Sam and the board to potentially return. Um, But then ultimately he did not return as CEO. They hired the former CEO of Twitch um, as of Monday morning. And Sam has joined Microsoft to lead their AI development efforts. Yes, along with uh, Greg Brockman, who was formerly the C, the chair of the OpenAI board, and um, uh, I don't think he, and another co-founder, I believe, but you know other key people there, and it, and it seems quite likely that a lot of key people from from OpenAI and a lot of people, period, from from OpenAI are going to be going with Sam to uh, uh, and Greg over over to Microsoft, which is pretty wild, given the fact that Microsoft and OpenAI are I don't want to say they're the same entity, but they are 
you know, Microsoft owns basically half of OpenAI. It is using OpenAI's technology, right? That is what is powering Bing, you know, the new Copilot, all that stuff is powered by OpenAI's technology. So you sort of had this huge reshuffle and this huge potential, you know, source of bad blood and disagreement and all that stuff. Um, for as far as I can tell, very little material change in the operations of any of these companies as of yet. Uh, I mean, it remains to be seen. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, it remains to be seen, but I do think it it, it looks quite likely that the, the locus of the innovation that was happening at OpenAI is going to shift to Microsoft um, and shift from the nonprofit to Microsoft, which is obviously very much well, a, a for-profit company, right? I mean, Microsoft has- That's a- not the truth. That's not the case. The locus of innovation was already within the, the for-profit company, right? The OpenAI- company that Sam Altman was the CEO of. That's a for-profit company. And, and this is where I want to get into some of the contradictions, because basically what we're seeing, my theory, what we're seeing in real time is that the, there are a lot of contradictions at play with OpenAI, the philosophical framework scaffolding surrounding it, the technology of AI itself, the individuals involved, and those contradictions are leading to this this activity. I want to make a little bit of a disclaimer, which is that we're recording this again on Monday the 20th. I believe that if you, you know, gave your take over the weekend and tweeted about it, that was way too early. Uh, if, you know, you were to wait until after things had really fully settled with the full benefit of hindsight, that's lame. This is the perfect time to do it. That's why we're doing it right now. But <laughs> in case we're wrong about any of this stuff, uh, let me just get that out of the way, right? So, it's like, here's the thing. Um, a lot of the commentary about this over the weekend was why has this happened? People were trying to figure out, people were speculating, why has the board done this? And there are a bunch of theories, right? Most of them were very stupid. Um, but the particularly, the, the one that we saw most commonly, I think, was that there was an issue on, quote, AI alignment, the idea that we need to ensure that AI does not have negative consequences for humanity. Now, I'm doing air quotes here because the risks, when you use the phrase AI alignment, you're talking about a specific set of risks. The people are talking about a specific set of risks. And those are, in particular, the the stupid fake risks of AI. Um, These are the existential human risks, i.e. the risk of AI, you know, turning us all into paperclips, ending humanity, right? And this is a thing that people believe. And specifically, it is a thing that is believed that these risks are real. This is a belief shared by all members of the OpenAI board. Um, they've all signed various letters and documents to this to this effect. And it's also a belief shared by the people developing AI at OpenAI, including Sam Altman. He is, a, he is of the belief that there are these existential risks from AI. And the speculation over the weekend is that there was a disagreement about how much, how quickly, how, how rapidly um, AI was being developed by, by OpenAI. Um, this is extraordinarily stupid, right? Um, I'll, I'll get to my theory on why they believe this, because I don't, I don't think that they are stupid. I think these are very, very smart people, right? I do think they believe a stupid thing, because I think they have an extremely strong incentive to believe the stupid thing. But there's really no mechanistic chain of, of reasoning that I've seen yet, which can, you know, lead us from what is essentially a very good uh, autofill, right? A very good autocomplete system in, in ChatGPT to ending the world, right? Um, and any step along that chain would require pretty significant human invention, intervention, 
like one of the things I've seen is like, oh, what if the AI allows terrorists to develop a bioweapon? It's like uh, terrorists can already get bioweapons. Like we had a series of anthrax attacks in the United States in the month after 9-11. And like, uh, like, like this is like not a thing. Ago, yeah. yeah, this is like just not a thing you need AI to do, right? Same thing with like nuclear weapons. Like, like you can do really substantial harms without AI, right? Um, and generally we have a bunch of systems in place designed to prevent that, right? Again, without AI. And then the other thing is like, oh, what if AI like takes over question mark? This is like not even a, this is completely unclear to me how, how this would actually happen. But this is apparently a thing that these people care about, right? And, and, and part of the speculation is that, oh, like, this is what the deal is. I think this is completely ridiculous. What, what do you think about this? Before we get into a, another set of speculations, what do you think about this, Mike? Also not a big AI doomer, no. Um, it, it's, um, I mean, I think the, it's a little, uh, the board's motivations are, are pretty unclear. I, I think what we could say is it seems quite likely that they were concerned about the the misalignment, um, to use that word again, between what Sam was doing and AI's or open AI's nonprofit mission, right? Which their charter says that they're uh, basically to advance AI for the general betterment of humanity. Knowing the sort of you know concerns and discussions that tend to run around in AI circles, it it seems likely that that kind of comes down to some of this uh, um, AI X risk, existential risk, as 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 people call it. Um, but it's also you know he's he's just moving too fast on the for profit side, trying to do too much other stuff, and we're 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 losing sight of this this mission. I think that's, that's the overarching thing. How much role, you know, did they really think he was on the verge of, you know, creating an AI that was going to, to wipe out humanity? I mean, hopefully they're, they're aware enough to at the very least say like, we're not real close to that point anyway. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that's, I think that's the fundamental tension between their, their nonprofit mission and, you know, the desire to make a lot of money for this for-profit company that, yes, that's that's where the innovation was happening, but the for-profit company was a subsidiary of and was wholly controlled by, which is why they were able to do this, wholly controlled by the board of the nonprofit. The question I think that's worth asking is why, why did they set things up this way? Why did they set it up as, a, as this nonprofit? Why do all these really smart people believe in AIX risk, a thing that is sort of very easy to disprove, or at least otherwise, has a huge amount of holes in it, right? And I think this is actually very fundamental, like a very fundamental contradiction and issue with AI, which is that AI requires a huge amount of resources, right? It's very, very expensive. It requires a huge amount of physical products in the the form of GPUs, right? It requires a huge amount of electricity. It requires a huge amount of exploited human labor, right? Scale AI, the company that does the click work uh, management that, that powers this AI. OpenAI uses them, right? They're one of the biggest customers of, of OpenAI. Or OpenAI is one of the biggest customers of Scale AI. And Scale AI is the company that, you know, has these basically digital sweatshops in Kenya, right? Um, paying people less than a living wage. Right. I mean, and this is the point about the the cost this is exactly why microsoft specifically was involved in this right because microsoft is kind of paying for its stake in this um in this 
the for-profit subsidiary or the nonprofit, um, in large part in kind, right? They're able to provide the the compute on their Azure cloud platform, right? That OpenAI it basically got to the point where they they couldn't afford all of the server time, essentially, right? To 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 run and train and and develop these these models, which is what led them to to create this for-profit subsidiary. Um, so basically, they could they could get that from Microsoft. And so it's this extraordinarily expensive thing, right? And the question becomes, how do you justify spending so much money, effort, material, and human suffering on something, right? And I think the answer is you have to tell yourself that it is extremely important, right? And the amount of important that it has to be to justify it needs to scale with the amount of effort, labor, and human suffering that you're putting into it, right? And so given the scope, the cost, the scale of AI development, you necessarily arrive at this point where you have basically people saying that it's going to end the world or has the potential to end the world because that's the thing that they need to say in order to justify the amount of effort they're putting into it, right? You can't, if your thing is like, yeah, we're going to improve Microsoft's business operations by 10%, you can't justify investing, you know, this huge amount of money into it, this huge amount of, of, of physical material into it, right? But the problem is that so far, <laughs> it is, you know, this thing that is basically, you know, SaaS 2.0, it's, it's a business services thing, right? You see this in Sam Altman's, you know, he says, oh, like, you know, I think 93% of Fortune 500 companies are like developing applications with with OpenAI, right? And that's like, that's a fine thing in a sort of vacuum, right? But it's not ending the world. It's not transforming human society, right? It's a, a, a startup, which is very, very negative in its cost basis right now. You know, we know that it's extraordinarily negative. Even after the investment with Microsoft, they had to stop accepting paying customers for GPT-4, right? Um, basically because, you know, it was costing them too much money to to run those services, and the costs of that they were getting from their paying customers were far outstripping the the costs it was generating, right? And maybe it's just a question of scale; they couldn't scale anymore within their current framework. But we know that one of the things that like apparently was fueling these disagreements between Sam and the board is that you know Sam wanted to raise a bunch of money, potentially from like the Saudis. Um, invest in the upstream like the the chips all this stuff right and um you know the basic issue is is really this contradiction right you know your ability to raise money to to fuel this effort depends on your belief that it is world-changing life-changing you know this potentially transformative that it has these x risks right all this stuff that that's all tied together and so your paycheck right, which is fundamentally dependent on your ability to raise this money, because it's certainly not coming from the, the revenue you're generating, right, it is tied into this belief as well, right? So if, if you are doing AI, you end up having to believe all of this stuff about X risk, about the impact. And you see this at, for any startup, I think this is true for basically any startup founder, right? Any startup founder has to believe that their thing is worth it, right? You know, they have to believe that their thing is worth the money that it's raising, that, that the potential impact is going to be there. It's just that most startup founders are, are, if you're doing a cupcake delivery business, right, 
you only need to raise $10 million or $1 million or half a million dollars or whatever. And you only need to have half a million dollars of, of belief, right? If you're raising 10 billion as like a series A, right? Or <laughs> whatever, you need to have a really, really incredible belief, right? And that sort of leads to this, this whole ecosystem. It's why they founded it as a nonprofit because of this belief, right? It's why there's this tension now between the nonprofit and the for-profit wing because the for-profit wing is being pulled in this direction of doing these profit-generating activities or doing this commercial activity, which is misaligned fundamentally with the beliefs that they have about the system, right? Um, and also the costs, you know, you're seeing that, that fraying on the cost versus the value output, right? So that that's my theory, right? This this whole thing is, and, this, and that's where you get AI doomerism and you get AI utopianism from this as well. It's all from this, the extraordinary costs of, of actually doing AI. Um, costs which to my mind are, have not been justified in any particular sense, right? Uh, in terms of the valuable output that they've produced, right? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, I mean, I guess the thing I'd push back on there is, is like if, I mean, Microsoft's a $2.7 trillion company. If you open it, even if all this AI does is improve their, you know, their operations 10%, like that's probably more than worth the money that they invested in it. So it's, you know, on the financial side, it's, you know, the the investments as as large as they are, I think I think could be um, justifiable, even if the AI is you know kind of more of an incremental sustaining type innovation in the near term to medium term. I think it is more the sort of psychological piece of right, like people that is like the, the culture, and it you know it's it's been successful as far as it goes, but that is a kind of a core part of the the Silicon Valley entrepreneurial culture is like, you have to position whatever it is that you're doing as, you know, kind yeah, of transcendent work, right? and world changing and world improving and world saving, even if it is like a cupcake delivery business. Yeah. I mean, that's what we saw with WeWork. I think Microsoft has kind of gotten lucky here. They didn't invest $10 billion to guarantee improve their business, right? They may, they invested $10 billion in, in a pretty risky way, right? Like they, they wanted to be the absolute first. And it seems like that risk has paid off so far in the sense that everyone thinks Microsoft is going to win AI and, you know, they have, OpenAI has stayed at the cutting edge, you know, they haven't been displaced by these other AI platforms. And there are other AI platforms that perform about as well as OpenAI, but they're just like the biggest name, right? If it was a risk-free investment, then the 10 billion would definitely be worth it. I would agree with you there. I think as a as a pretty risky investment uh, that just happens to have worked so far, it's it's a lot more questionable. Although that is something we'll have to see truly what, what the actual outcome is, right? But, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the point here. Like these people have, have had to drink their own Kool-Aid to a really extensive degree. And the contradictions between that and, and running the actual business, the for-profit business, which is what they actually want, are, are, are tearing them apart, literally tearing them apart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm kind of interested to, to get your, your take on, you know, does this change mean anything or what is the significance of this change for sort of the future trajectory of AI development. And I guess I, I kind of tip my hand there. I'm not really sure I that, don't think it means a you know, we, we... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so part of the deal with Microsoft, right. I I, I agree with that. I, I think that um, maybe not nothing, but yeah, I don't think it sort of fundamentally should, should change your outlook, uh, you know, from a, from a business sense on, on, the impact of AI. I mean, Microsoft already has it because a part of this deal, they have a complete license to everything that 
um, that OpenAI has developed, with the exception that they <laughs> put in a carve out. Yes, what's the carve out? Artificial general intelligence. <laughs> yeah. So if it, the artificial general intelligence. So if they, if they invent though it's, God, they're, they're, if they invent God, Microsoft does not get that. Um, though I, their, their, their definition of artificial general intelligence is, is a little, little loose. Uh, so limited. They, it's a pretty uh, limited. It's a, what better than a human it, that doing a task is, is AGI is their definition. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So there, there could be some interesting arguments about that in the, in the future, but yeah, I mean, so basically Sam and his colleagues, which it looks like it'll probably be quite a lot of them who end up joining him in this new venture at, at Microsoft will be able to basically keep doing what they were doing. There's not really going to be any impediments to they I mean, they've got the source code and the, the model weights and everything, right? They have access to all of that. So they can just keep kind of doing whatever they were doing. It probably does, you know, accelerate the commercial impact, the, the commercialization of it in the sense that they're, they're not going to be held back anymore by this, um, by this corporate structure, by this weird nonprofit corporate structure. Microsoft is going to probably be pretty willing to throw, continue throwing uh, money at them and, you know, maybe even be able to do that more efficiently now. So, uh, you know, his chip startup or AI chips or, or, or the, you know, kind of chat GPT bot store, that they were launching some of that stuff might actually move faster now than it that it would have before. See, here's the thing: it is going to move just as fast as it would have because the nonprofit structure was always fake. Okay, the nonprofit was never going to have any capability. Wasn't, wasn't fake enough for Sam to keep his job? <laughs> but he did keep his job. Like he has in in 48 hours, he's maybe even more powerful than he was previously. Like <laughs> that's the thing. Like like he. The the ability of so if you really cared about AIX risk, you would actually just not do AI, right? So from the very very premise, if you legitimately think that you're building a nuclear bomb, the thing to do is not build a nuclear bomb, right? It doesn't make the world safer, and the thing to do is to prevent other people from building a nuclear bomb via you know treaties or whatever, right? And then the the fact that they spun out a, a for profit company owned by a nonprofit that was always a contradiction in terms. It was never gonna work. For sure. You know, the fact that the moment they tried to push back on any of the thing, not even change course, just get rid of the guy, it instantly failed. Their power was broken immediately, right? In, in practical terms. And that, that shouldn't be a surprise. It was always fake. The nonprofit nature of this was always part of an ideological cover, a thing that they had to believe about themselves in order to justify the immiseration that they're inflicting on, <laughs> on people, right? You know, like, that's what it's all about. So... It's not going to slow down or even accelerate development of anything. It might give opportunity for other brands, other AI groups to, to have more air in the market because OpenAI is maybe discredited now. That's the only thing that will really change. But other than that, it changes nothing. It's it's great. I had a really good time, you know, just just <laughs> thinking about all this stuff and, and, and reading people's hysterical reactions to it. It's it's palace you know we yeah. don't have uh court gestures and unix anymore we we have this type of thing so it was good fun it was yeah it's a pretty fascinating weekend for sure. <laughs> all right everyone we now have a exciting uh discussion coming up with um a couple of uh a couple of folks who are real leaders in the the bioeconomy. We are talking to Zhenya Dana 
and Steve Evans from Biomade, which is a, a really interesting organization uh, that I'll let them them tell us a, a little bit more about, but dedicated to advancing uh, bioeconomy and biomanufacturing here in in the U.S. Um, so, Jenya, Steve, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, good to be here. So, uh, yeah, maybe we can just uh, kick off with that talk with you first, uh, talk a little bit about about Biomade um, and how that uh, how that organization came about and what was uh, what was the motivation for for, for creating it. Happy to get that started. So the way that we think about it is the opportunity space around the ability to use biology and biological processes to produce the building blocks for materials, chemicals, energy, a whole wide range of different things that everybody uses every day in their life. And for that reason, the opportunity is, is really big in terms of economic impact. Uh, there have been some studies out there that have shown that up to $4 trillion a year annually could be generated by the bioeconomy within the next 10 to 20 years or so. So in that context, uh, in the time frame 2019-2020, the U.S. government and the Department of Defense really identified that the investments that have gone into building our ability to work with biology and produce these materials needed to get a big push in order to reach that economic impact and really move to a commercial scale that would enable such an impact. And in that context, then, we had uh, within the community already uh, Engineering Biology Research Consortium, which was a public-private partnership. And they brought together, uh, in, in response to a call that the government put out, you know, how do we, how do we tackle this challenge? They brought together nearly 100 organizations to think about what's the vision of what's needed to get to this commercial scale that's really going to matter. And so Biomade is the result of that. And we're an independent nonprofit public-private partnership. It was first announced in October of 2020, and we've just been growing since then. And our goals as uh, this nonprofit organization are really to support economic and national security um, and to focus on things like supply chains, innovation, workforce, how to produce critical products, all using those biological processes and, and biological inputs. So we are a manufacturing innovation institute, one of those institutes that's in place to really help different areas of technology uh, move into that, that commercial space. And we're really, really pleased uh, to, to be pushing this forward uh, at, at a pretty rapid clip uh, within our offices here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and out in the Bay Area in Emeryville, California. So maybe one of the, the other questions is, is sort of why now, right, for this, uh, that people have been working on you know, biomanufacturing, fermentation, and, and there's been a lot of work over the last really couple of decades looking to apply that to chemicals and, and materials production, um, which has been, I think this is maybe part of the answer, right? It's been a challenging path for, for a lot of companies. What's, uh, what I think maybe motivated the sense that like now is the time that was ripe for this kind of big push into really uh, trying to make make some of these uh, these technologies more successful in, in manufacturing. Steve, do you want to take that one? Sure. Um, I think you hinted at it at the beginning, Jinya, when parts of the government looked around, there, there have been 
ongoing substantial federal spends in areas of early technology development. But the ability to move those interesting strains, molecules, and processes up into commercial relevance has been the thing that's lagged. And so the federal uh, spend uh, is really strong in the innovation ecosystem. This is a great place to come and build a new thing. Uh, but getting that across uh, some version, it's the valley of death, if you want to call it that, or I like to think about it, it's just getting things to where there's a commercially relevant fit for what you're doing. So the Department of Defense uh, has been heavily involved in those investments in, in making things um, that can uh, impact biology on the software and the process side. Uh, and they want to be able to reap the benefit of that, to procure things. Uh, that means you have to be able to manufacture them at scale. Um, but then not only to procure them for their use, but to help build um, this ecosystem here in the U.S. Um, as a way to strengthen um, the bioeconomy. So things that we can build here with resources here, with uh, feedstocks here, uh, to be able to strengthen that supply chain. So a lot of things kind of converged at that point in time that really said, here's an effort to move in this public-private partnership uh, under the uh, Manufacturing Innovation Institute framework. Um, and so that's, I think that's the place that we are. Um, and so that gives us a unique um, uh, position in that scale up ecosystem uh, to be able to pull together resources and uh, expertise and try to move that thing up the hill. So how, how do you do that? Like what are the specific tools that, um, that Biomade uses is, you know, you're giving money in kind support, for me, like what are what are the specific uh, activities that you're that you're leveraging to um, to try to push that goal forward? So we do this in three main ways, and it's via support grant supporting programs of work. You reference that funding piece of it, building a robust ecosystem of players, and tackling the infrastructure challenge. Those are really the three key areas of our focus. And we are a member-based organization. I'm really very proud of this. And there's been a tremendous amount of work on the behalf of Biomade to bring together nearly 250 different organizations from industry to government, to educational institutions, uh, philanthropy. And the goal of that is to be able to foster those partnerships that propel those technologies from lab to the, the commercial market. So we want to ensure that as we're bringing together this ecosystem and bringing to bear significant resources to, to work on technology development, that we also wrap that in considerations around workforce, you know, building a skilled workforce, and that we, as we're designing, are incorporating considerations about safety and sustainability and the societal implications of the work that we're doing. And we're really guided by, I would say, the industry and their, their roadmaps, their blueprints. 
and this commercial scale aspects and, and understanding what they need to see coming out of research, development, technology, readiness is incredibly important for us to bring into these conversations and into the design of all of the work that we do. So I know that Steve has been operating in this space for a very long time and has some really salient viewpoints on particularly what it takes for industry uh, to be a good partner and an incredibly critical partner in this process. So I'll turn it over to him to fill in on that part as well. Thanks, Jinya. And what I would like to do is really pick up on that point about the roadmaps and blueprints. And so what I would say is that uh, since before it was born, Biomade has tried to be a listening organization. We pull together uh, experts in fields, whether it's in manufacturing or in engineering biology or in workforce development uh, or in looking at societal implications. We bring together people who've been in those roles and have strong understandings so that we're trying to advance based on the collective learnings of our ecosystem over time. We're not trying to create something as though only we have the ideas. And so that really rolls into the way that our, our teams are comprised. We have um, in all of our uh, programmatic thrusts, we have uh, working teams comprised of industry, government, we have academics on them and they come together. They build those industry uh, directed roadmaps and blueprints in all of our technical areas uh, and in all of our programmatic areas. Um, and then that is what forms the basis of our project calls. We're in the midst of an active project call now, number four. Um, and just in the uh, two years that we've been operating, um, we've been able to use those roadmaps and blueprints to drive collaborative projects into the ecosystem to work on technology or issues that matter. So uh, over 65 projects have been um, uh, initiated over that time and over $150 million have been poured into those uh, projects. And so we're trying to make a sustained and substantial impact into areas that matter. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been one of the big themes. I, I think we've also been exploring at, at, at Lux a lot is just the importance, particularly when you're going through these type of system transitions, you know, they're talking about the energy transition or the circular economy or the, the bio economy of building these new types of ecosystems, because it is collaborations often amongst different types of organization or different types of expertise that you wouldn't you know, normally have had before that can be really critical to making these these types of projects work, right? And that's the importance of Biomade being a .org, a public-private partnership that allows us to have that convening capability. Um, and again, if we pull people together, though, and we don't listen to them, that's a missed opportunity. And that's why um, it's so important that we have um, the, uh, the, the players in the room who can help move and that we are listening and collaborating, trying to build 
uh, this ecosystem. Uh, and as you mentioned in the transition uh, framework, that's I think one of the real challenges because the timeframes that uh, different players in the ecosystem have, their risk tolerance uh, and their lines of sight often aren't um, directly consistent with an entire industry makeover. Um, that takes more than a five-year plan, yeah. let's just say. So one of the things that, that you also mentioned, um, Jenya, is around the, the the broader sustainability impact, right? And I think there's sometimes when you, you talk about bio-based or biomanufacturing, there's people default to that's that's naturally it's going to be more sustainable than making something from petroleum or fossil resources um and of course it it often can be but there's 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 also some challenges um around using biomass to feed stocks in terms of water land use biodiversity social impact as as you mentioned so is that part of you know how do you how do you kind of navigate those that's often a challenge we find for clients like well, like yeah this gives me reduced emissions but maybe it has these other impacts on water or ecosystems how do you think about uh, kind of navigating those balancing some of those those different types of factors yeah, those are really important considerations and top of mind for many players in our ecosystem and society broadly the way that I like to think about this at Biomade is that the breadth at which we are leveraging biology to do things that were traditionally the domain of chemicals is so large. Uh, they, these are substances that are really in, in everything, whether they're airplanes or a piece of clothing, just thinking about the fuel, the coatings, the fibers, the rubber, all of the different materials that go into everyday products, big and small, and the opportunity that we have to really source and create these components uh, in new ways that pull from a really wide range of inputs and processes, taking things like waste gases um, from steel mills and, and transforming that into ethanol for transportation fuel, using microorganisms that secrete calcium carbonate and stitch together into self-healing concrete. There are so many different ways of conceptualizing, and, and we do this, and our members do this uh, on a daily basis, the bringing together of resources that are right here uh, in, in the U.S. and that in many instances can be safer or um, more tied to local economies and revitalization of, uh, of different economies and, and you know, pulling those inputs through into these large scale systems. Uh, th that's really the way that I think about the broader context of everything that we're doing at Biomade and, and what the economic opportunity is, Go, it is really, really large, um, you know, far, far beyond uh, I guess thinking about strictly uh, biomass inputs into the system, we we really want to zoom way out and think about all of the different opportunities that exist in this space. I'll leave it there. See if Steve has other thoughts that have come from his uh, his long experience in this space as well. Well, just briefly, I think you know if if somebody asked me to give a the briefest tagline I could about what we try to do. 
It is that we are trying to make things with biology or from biology. And that's where um, some of the uh, members in our ecosystem take very different approaches. So chemienzymatic approaches like solugen or direct chemical transformation of biofeedstocks like an origin materials. Um, but we also have uh, companies that are directly tied into um, the larger landscape of agriculture. Um, and they realize that it is very important to be working with the agricultural community to do things like regenerative agriculture. And so we don't see these things as in a conflict. Uh, we see these as a systems level uh, uh, challenge. And so what I'll leave that with then is that overall we have been working uh, uh, with uh, systems level thinking. And the way that that comes out is in techno-economic or life cycle analyses. And so we spend a lot of time, our members spend a lot of time trying to understand uh, where the materials that they're using will come from, the energy and other impacts that are part of manufacturing that material, distributing that material, and then it's end of life. How does end of life play in? Uh, and are there opportunities all along those uh, uh, large steps to bring in uh, efficiencies, recycle loops, thinking about how you can, say, make a, a plant zero water discharge as a challenge, um, how you can use local sources of renewable energy or local sources of hydrogen or things of that nature. So bringing in those components, uh, doing the math on it to make it, it's got to make economic sense uh, to have a sustainable uh, uh, systems transition, but it is much broader than just what is interesting in your bioreactor. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that type of systems thinking is, you know, that, that's, that's one of the things where I feel like an organization like Biomade can have such a contribution because a lot of times, you know, innovation teams that are working within a certain paradigm, uh, you know, I work a lot with folks in the chemicals industry, right? And they're they're obviously used to a certain set of inputs and processes, and very intrigued by the the possibility of biomanufacturing. And um, but kind of thinking through all of those system level considerations is is a real challenge for them. And you know, having having organizations like Biomade or or other partnerships and ecosystems that that are thinking through that together, uh, I think, can be really valuable. So one of the things that was interesting to me, I mean, I know Biomade is a U.S.-based, you know, U.S. government-sponsored organization, but um, uh, just in kind of researching this, I noticed you both have experience working abroad and with international organizations. Jania, uh, you did your, your PhD in South Africa, I believe, and Steve, you've yes. done work with uh, the UN, uh, the um, Convention on Biological Diversity in Sinbio, and like that. So I, I'm actually curious a little bit for your, your take also on the the international perspective of uh, of this as well, right? Because there's there's a lot of potential for the bioeconomy globally, including the, the global south. And there's a lot of, you know, places like Thailand and, and Malaysia have big initiatives around bioeconomy and things as well. What do you what do you see as the, the opportunities kind of internationally as well? 
So I wanted to say that, you know, as you've pointed out, and in, in looking around at what's happening around the world, there are a lot of different ways that countries are tackling the bioeconomy and bioindustrial manufacturing. And you know, we see a lot of work that is that is grounded really in their local or regional needs and the way that people think about, is it forestry, is it oceans, is it um, agriculture, and what really anchors them in their quest to ensure they're pulling the, the most appropriate resources and fostering you know, the economies that they want to see. They are all doing it a little bit differently. And that's really good for the community because that offers a lot of lessons that we can take forward. And in terms of Biomade being that place of, of convening, uh, learning lessons from others across the world is something that we're really interested in, in doing. So you could think of a little bit as a global de-risking process that's happening as countries tackle their own bioeconomies in their own way. You know, there are very specific places where we're really interested in how we can collaborate. Talent uh, and training is really, uh, I think, a high priority area. And you know, we have a lot of interest and a lot of work um, happening at Biomate around the education and workforce development pieces of this. And that is going to be broadly applicable and lots of sharing and collaboration that can be done about how to ensure that we're inspiring uh, younger people to consider that biology is cool and they can make a career out of it and that we are training uh, educators and uh, helping provide curricula and talent pipelines that are appropriate for what industry and uh, local and regional economies are looking for. So at Biomade, we're doing a, a lot of work in terms of stitching together um, maybe older curricula from, from a lot of biotechnology work into curricula that are fit for purpose for a new bioeconomy and bioindustrial manufacturing landscape. And this is something that is eminently shareable and collaborative around the world. Yeah, I think as you, as you look at this, um... Uh, an area that as you look around other places, uh, in particularly uh, uh, to Europe, um, the U.S. is still lagging in certain scales of uh, bioindustrial technology uh, development. So getting things uh, from that lab bench, we're excellent at it. Uh, we know how to make um, large scale facilities here. Um, it's that intermediate um, reusable pilot and intermediate scale that is a bit of a challenge. Number of places have pointed that out. And so I think Biomade working in that space is really important. Um, and the world uh, is a globally regulated world, but everybody regulates their own thing. And so products made here have to be able to navigate that global landscape of regulations. And so um, we can't drive that. That's not our uh, remit or ability, but working with members uh, that especially have a global representation, I think is an important component for what we can do. Um, and then 
even domestically, there are activities going on in terms of regulatory clarity here. Um, and so that's an important component for us. Um, um, and what I would say, uh, lastly, if we think about um, the bioeconomy is also going to have an intimate tie with data. And so understanding how data will be um, used, how it will be secured um, as we do process scale up, uh, and then ultimately commercialization. Um, those are areas of global interest and areas that we are uh, glad that we're able to be participating in. Yeah, so maybe I'll just uh, conclude by asking, um, you know, what's your outlook on the future? What do you what do you think are going to be the most significant changes or developments that we're going to see over the next, you know, sort of five to ten years in this in this space? So I will share a little bit more in answering this question about some of the work we're doing in the pilot scale production space. I, Steve already kind of teed this up. And one of the pillars of work for Biomade is the intermediate scale production facility uh, type of infrastructure. And the fact that it's been noted that we are in the United States, at least uh, in a position where we can really spur investment into critical infrastructure that's needed to fill that gap, you know, between the R and D stage and, and the commercial scale production. Yeah. That and is that, that value of Valley of death, uh, the Valley of death that you, right that, that, yeah, that you referred to. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really excited to see what is possible in that space. Um, and in, in Biomade, we've been working really closely with our U S government partners and at the state and local level, to understand what the opportunities are for those types of pilot scale facilities um, to be located within communities and communities that are close to you know, relevant feedstocks and, and workforces is going to be really, really important. And I will say, as a person who grew up in Southern Mississippi and has spent a lot of time in rural America and uh, at the edge of agricultural communities, the opportunity to revitalize some of these communities, but also to continue to offer opportunities um, in this in this economy is really, really important. And that is what is really exciting to me. I think we're going to make some really good progress towards that um, in the time frame that you that you mentioned. I'll toss it over to Steve now because he thinks in longer time horizon sometimes than I do. So over to you, Steve. Thanks. No, I think it's important. And, you know, five and 10 years are very important time windows uh, because they represent the limit, say, of a venture fund. Um, that's the outer limit of what they would like to, to look at. Um, it's also a time frame um, that is important for many types of federal and state funding initiatives. And so it's still very important that in a five to 10 year time frame, tangible evidence that we're moving uh, into this new uh, uh, development space, uh, this new framework of the economy is very important. On the other hand, we need to realize, uh, you know, even if you can turn your design, build, test, learn cycle uh, in two or three months, you can't build a factory in two or three months, at least using technologies that we have today. And so once you begin thinking about construction at scale, you're on a very different time frame that can consume a pretty good chunk of, say, a five-year window. 
And so as we think about, um, uh, we've got great activities uh, of people in lab coats moving things in the lab. We've really, to be at scale and impacting, we have to be thinking about things at the uh, rail car scale, where what's coming into a factory and going out of the factory is at a rail car level. Uh, that's important for food, it's important for fuels, it's important for uh, materials that would be uh, going into uh, this economy, because that's the economy that the petroleum industry moves their materials around in. And so thinking about that and then making sure we're on that trajectory to be impacting this, this uh, dramatic change is very important. That window will be longer than five to 10 years, but it's important that we're making discrete, tangible uh, contributions, evidences uh, that people can look at to retain their interest and then to retain, importantly, the talent that would come in and uh, build these things uh, and the money that needs to come to finance industrial scale manufacturing. Yeah, and that's something, you know, we, 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 like you said, you know, we know we can do in, in, in the US and, and in many other places, right? Once these things are sufficiently proven, there's, there's definitely, I mean, we hear it all the time, there's definitely an appetite for, for biomanufacturing and, and for the ability to, you know, have these more bio-based and sustainable ingredients and materials and, and inputs. Um, and uh, I think there, there's a lot of appetite for that. And if, you know, we can get over some of these challenges that I think Biomate is really trying to, to address. So there's, um, there's definitely demand there. And, and I think, um, you know, for technologies that are proven, there's, there's the funding to help, to help deliver on it. So uh, it is going to be a very interesting um, space to follow. I think in general, very interested in following how, uh, you know, Biomade's progress and and the uh, the projects and and efforts that you're that you're funding as well. Um, but uh, yeah, and so maybe we'll get a chance to check back in in a year or two and see how things are going here on the on the podcast as well. But uh, yeah, I want to thank you for your, your time and um, and appreciate the uh, sharing 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 about your work and uh, really interesting conversation. So thank you again very much for for joining us here. My pleasure. Thank you for having. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research, the leading sustainable innovation research and advisory firm. You can follow this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more, check out www.luxresearchinc.com blog for all of the latest news, opinions, and articles.